Did you see it? Yes. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Um, we're jumping into the Exodus today, guys. We've been on this journey since September, or rather August, of going through Jesus' Bible. You know it is the Old Testament. And um, the story that we're going to hit today of the Exodus is arguably the most important story, certainly the most impacting story of the entire Old Testament. From this point forward, um, which we're talking the second book, right? From this point forward, what happened in these events of this thing that we call the Exodus shaped the Israelite uh, ethos, their theology, their, their ideas about God forevermore. Now, there's a, an adage, and it's going to kind of lead us into what we're going to do today, is, um, you know, you can always tell a Christian because they say this is the most important book there ever is, and they've actually never read it, um, and, you know, it really got me thinking. There's some of us who have grown up in church world who are um, familiar with the term, but I don't need to show a hands here. But it just begs the question, when's the last time you've actually read the story? How much of your perception of the Exodus is based on Charlton Heston or Batman or, or Prince of Egypt or, or golden books or Sunday school curriculum as opposed to the Bible itself. And sometimes you just need to know the story. You know what I mean? So that's what we're going to be doing today. What I'm going to be doing is leading you through an extended reading and presentation of the Exodus. Now, it is going to be absolutely imperative that you have one of these open with you today. If you didn't bring your own, I encourage you to to, to take one out of one of the chairs and open up to Exodus chapter 1. And what we're going to look at today is Exodus chapter 1 through 14, not in a straight through read, so take a breath, all right? But in various mediums. And in doing so, what we are going to get is the account of what happened from Israel falling into the hands of slavery up until the famous episode of the crossing through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, if you would rather call it that. So I encourage you to follow along. And at Exodus 1, it says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Jacob is also named Israel. Each with his family. And here they are, the 12 tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Ephtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. It's not really one of those grab-ya kind of starts, is it? And this is the reason why. What you're reading is a sequel. Have you ever tried to watch a sequel of a movie without watching the first movie that came along? Sometimes it works, but sometimes you find yourself, wait, what's going on? Well, if you're feeling that way, good, because it's a sequel. A sequel to what? Take a guess. Genesis. They are meant to be read together. And so we pick up the story and it goes on. It says in verse 6, now Joseph, who was a, a prince of Egypt... And all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, 
to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) And God appreciated the lie. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, or literally an ark, it would say in Hebrew, for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And so what we get is the beginning of a story where we see Israelite, the Israelites going from a place of deliverance in Egypt 
to a 180 place where they are utterly oppressed in Egypt. God has allowed them to be found in a place of cruel oppression and suffering, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better. Have you had the moments where it seems bad, and you don't think it can get any worse, and then Pharaoh comes along and says, now start killing them. And you get the story of a young Hebrew mother looking at her son, knowing the king's edict, and going, what choice do I have? She puts him in a little boat, a little basket, an ark, and pushes him out into the Nile, hoping maybe she can recover him, hoping something happens. And isn't it uncanny how God works in the midst of suffering? Pharaoh's daughter finds this child, has compassion on him, but needs someone to take care of him. And how God orchestrates through the scene that it's Pharaoh's or or Moses' own birth mother who ends up being the one that gets to raise him in childhood. And what you see in the Exodus is a story of God who is in the details of people's suffering. Now, what we get is the beginning of what looks like a deliverance story. And what happens after this is you see in the rest of chapter 2 that Moses grows. He grows as a prince of Egypt. Now let's take a look just at something to kind of key this in off the bat. His name, Moses, right? Now I want to show you a slide here. Cue it up. What you're looking at is the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Now if you go with an early dating for Exodus, meaning when did this actually happen in history? There's some debate of a couple hundred years, but if you go with the early date of about 1450 BC, look at the names of the pharaohs of that time period. You got Amhos, but after that, what do you got? Tutmos, one, and two, and three, and four. Do you see the Egyptian name Moses tucked in there? What is he named? Moses at the time of these pharaohs who bear the name Moses. Now, it's fascinating if you get down to Akhenaten, arguably about 50 to 100 years after Moses and all that this has happened, he tries to move Egypt from polytheism and the worship of all these multiple gods to monotheism. What does this happen on the heels of? God delivering the people of Israel who claim that there is one God. Now, it didn't last. You get to Tutankhamun, and that's probably the only pharaoh. You know, here's a picture of him, right? King Tut. The boy king, the reason he's so famous, not only because he dug up a bunch of gold, um, but because of the shift back. And so what we see is Moses grows as a prince of Egypt in the Egyptian court. God is poising this Hebrew in a place, in a time, to be a deliverer for his people. And do you ever have these moments where you're on the roller coaster of life and it starts to go down and when you think it can't go down anymore, it crashes rock bottom. But then God starts to resurrect something out of the ashes and it starts to go up and you start to see light and hope starts to get reborn. And have you ever found yourself in that position afraid to hope because you're just waiting for the carpet to get pulled out from underneath you? Here we have this Hebrew boy, this, this prince of Egypt, 
And it looks like there might be some influence in the Egyptian court. And the story goes on to say that as Moses grows, he, he sees the Israelites being mistreated. And he intervenes. He sees when being brutally mistreated, he intervenes, and in the process ends up killing the Egyptian who oppressed him. And even when you're a son of the Egyptian court, murdering Egyptians still matters. And he's forced into exile. The one with all the hopes and dreams is sent far away. He is exiled into the wilderness. The one who has everything has everything taken from him and he lives in hiding for years. Now pick up with me at chapter three. We find Moses older. He's out in the wilderness. And it says he was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. A head of state reduced to a shepherd. Jethro was the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, um, also known as Sinai, the mountain of God. It says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, I want to show you 60 seconds of the most boring video that has ever been captured, okay? And it's very timely because what this is, is someone lighting a Christmas tree on fire in their house. Now, anyone got a live tree? Anyone? Like one of you? Wow. Are you a bunch of fake artificial people? When we get a live tree, it's generally up until like St. Patrick's Day. How about you? All right. You ever lit one up in like July? You ever save it for the bonfire? Here is a picture of what happens to a Christmas tree when it's ignited in a home. Take it. How long did it take to go up? Now, I couldn't see it too well on my screen, but how about you? Did you get the second counter? Was it visible? Here's the more important question. How long did it take to burn out? Not the room, but the tree. 20 seconds? 10 seconds, maybe? Did you see how it went? It went up. And as quick as it went up, it went out. Now, are you starting to understand what's going on with Moses? Because what do you do when the bush goes up, but it doesn't go out? Something strange is going on, right? And so Moses is out there and he sees it. He sees this bush and it is not consumed. It's fascinating to me that this little phrase, and the bush was not consumed, has become a mantra in Jewish communities post-Holocaust. He sees the bush and it was not consumed. He says, I got to go check this out. Now follow me at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
Now, you know the only thing stranger than a bush on fire not burning up? It's when it starts talking to you. You got it. Have you ever seen, have you seen those really creepy talking Christmas trees this year or in the last couple of years where like the mouth opens on it and oh, oh my gosh. Verse five, do not come any closer, God said like, yeah, you got to tell me that twice. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Have you ever gone to see something or have you ever been standing in a place and suddenly your perspective changes and you realize that you are in the midst of something that is far beyond what you first realized? And the only gut reaction is to say, I need to get on the ground with my face in the dirt because there is something big and holy and powerful here and I am standing in the presence of raw power. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Because what the Exodus will reveal is fundamentally that's the kind of God he is. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Perizzites, and all the otherites, the Israelites, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses did what we'd all do. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That's what he's there for. That's what she's there for, me, not me. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Pause. Is that the lamest sign to you in the world? Who wants a sign after the fact? No, God, give me a sign before the fact because I want some proof to hang my hat on. But God doesn't do that, does he? God doesn't often work that way. No, trust me, and then you'll have your sign. So Moses said, excuse number two, well, what if I go and, and the God of your fathers has, and they say, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, and let me just have you shout it out. Do you know his name? Maybe. Here it is. Echia, Esher, Echia. Do you want to know God's name, the name that he gives? That's how you would say it. Echia, Esher, Echia. It can be translated a number of ways. I am who I am. It always sounds like Popeye to me. <laughs> it could be translated, I will be who I will be. It can be translated, I will cause to be what I will cause to be. It can be translated, Echia 
is who I am. But this is the name that God gives. And God said, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, a lot of people are told that the name of God is Yahweh. You've heard that, right? It's just a difference of a verbal form. Ehya is how you would say, I am. But what the Hebrew Bible will do is take it and put it from first person into third person. Okay, cold sweats, grammar flashback. Do you know what third person means? What is the third person singular? He, she, or it is. And do you know how you say he, she, or it is in Hebrew? Yahweh. What does it mean? Not I am. He is. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, do you notice that God doesn't really answer the question? What's your name? Yeah, I am. Yeah. However you want to go with the significance of the name, and we could spend two hours talking about it. At one fundamental level, don't miss this point. There is a sense in this passage, I think, of God coming to Moses saying, stop asking stupid questions. I told you to go. Go. Stop asking stupid questions. I told you to go. Go. Stop coming up with excuses. Who am I? You know who I am. Do you get the sense? You know who I am. I am the one who's been talking to you. I am the one in this bush. I am the one who has been with your people. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one who has been with you, Moses, from the time that your mother put you in a basket. You know who I am. So stop debating theology and go do what I've called you to do. Because my people are suffering. And you're the one that's going to bring them deliverance. Now, what I'd like you to do is read the rest of chapter 3 on your own. And as you do, come to terms with all that God says and how central it's going to be. Keep reading if you need. What you get in Exodus chapter 3 is a snapshot of the entire story. If you want to understand the Exodus, chapters 1 through 14, in a summary statement, read chapter 3. Because what God does is lay out for Moses all that is going to come to be fulfilled in the chapters to follow. Now, as you're reading, I want you to continue reading on your own through chapter 4. Read chapter 4, go verses 1 through 20. And put yourself in Moses' shoes as he and God have it out. Now go ahead and keep reading if you haven't yet finished. But I think this is a good time to pause and bring something out. 
We started this, this time together this morning by saying, sometimes you just need to know the story. But see, there's a danger in saying that because it could lead you to the conclusion that what the Bible is fundamentally about is just knowing a good story. Because the Bible has always been about something so much more fundamental than that. See, God isn't just giving you some facts here or, or, or a history of, of, of things he's done in the past. It's not just even a revelation of, of who he is. It's something that God wants to do something in you. See, in many ways, this is an engine or a catalyst, how the Spirit works. And what God wants to do through these stories is connect with you. He wants to birth something in you and and show something about yourself in you. And as I read through chapter 4, what I read through is just a snapshot of the human condition. God says, go. And I'm going to show them who I am, but what are people going to do? They're going to resist. They're going to deny. They're going to have their hearts hardened. And so God will show them more clearly. But instead of responding, they'll resist. They'll deny. They'll allow their hearts to be hardened. Even Moses, God says, go. Not me. God says, go. Every excuse in the book See, what we're getting a story of here is not just Egypt and Israel back in the second millennium BC. We're getting a story of a God coming into contact with the human condition. We gather here in times like today because when I read something like chapter 4, I know these same propensities are in me. Verse 21 says, The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that, you will not, so that he will not let the people go. That verse terrifies me. The fact of having your heart be hardened. And honestly, guys, I hope it terrifies you a little bit as well. See, when we talk about sin and belief and these kinds of things, it's not just, it's just not cool intellectual discussions for a Sunday morning. It's life. It's our condition. And I never want to find myself in a place where I've grown calloused or hard to God. I want to invite you on your feet just for a moment. There is an ancient Christian and Jewish practice before that of confession. And confession at its root is not just coming up with a a list of some things that maybe I dropped the ball on. It's saying, God, I know I've got a heart that, that yearns to be hard. May it not happen to me. Confession is about removing calluses. About willing to risk making yourself vulnerable before God. 
sensitive. Where his word will stick and his spirit will move. So I want to invite you for a few moments today to just bow your heads and close your eyes. Ask God to keep your heart soft in his hands and open to him. Yeah.
And the Lord said, this is what you are to say. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. And so I will kill your firstborn son. It is the story of a God who would do anything for his children. You can have a seat. Now what's significant is it says in 29 that Moses and Aaron brought together all the Israelites, of, uh, all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. It's the fundamental response of what it means to be the people of God whose hearts are not hardened. To believe. To bow down. And to worship. Now, chapter 5 and 6 continues. And you can read it through as I summarize if you want or read it later. About how Moses chooses to act. He chooses to listen to God, to trust God, and to go. And everything said in chapter 3 comes to pass. Pharaoh will not let the people go. And the ante starts to get raised. Pharaoh becomes more cruel. He begins demanding more. He begins oppressing the people more. He begins doubling their workload without any sign of relief. Because if there is a reality in the world, the reality is this. When you start to follow God, the forces of this world will fight against you. Following God comes with suffering. It comes with struggle. It comes with resistance. I wish I could tell you otherwise. It's just the way it is. Now, in verse 28 of chapter 6, it says, When the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? We've heard this before, right? Because sometimes we just don't get beyond ourselves. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But I will harden his heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders, and he will not listen to you. And I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And miracles start to happen. God, God sends Moses before Israel, uh, before Egypt, and he throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. And you've got to read these stories for yourself. And I'll pick up in 7 verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he goes out to the river, in the morning as he goes out to the river, wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Say to him, the Lord... The God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. So this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to to drink its water. And it begins a showdown between God and Pharaoh, the God of his day, over the people of Israelite in his hands. Now I encourage you sometime to read the next few chapters through. Read the account of the ten, as it puts it, signs, wonders, plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians. For our sake here today, we've summarized them with this. Once I called you brother, once I thought the chance to make you laugh was all I ever wanted. Even now, I wish that God had chose another Serving as your foe on his behalf He's the last thing that I wanted This was my home All this pain and devastation How it tortures me inside All the innocent who suffer From your stubbornness and pride Called brother, why must you call down another blow?
my cold brother. How could you have come to hate his soul? Is this what you wanted? You and your people have my permission to go. Leave me!
So Moses said, About midnight, the Lord will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, there will be wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for a household. And if they are too small to share it, the animals you choose must be a year old males without defect. Then you are to take some of the blood after you have slaughtered it and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where you eat the lamb. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not leave any of it till morning. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I think of the Exodus and I see a story filled with violence, suffering, pain, fear, hope. When we started this journey, I shared that one of the things I like about the New Testament or the Old Testament is that it does not sanitize things. It does not sugarcoat the details or back off ones that are unpopular and uncomfortable. It says what it wants to say. It talks about the suffering and realities of this world in a way that we try to insulate ourselves from. But all the insulation in the world can't keep it at bay, can it? It is the story of a God who delivers. A story of a God who will do whatever it takes to deliver his people. And think about that in relation to this, because it was on the night when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, over a thousand years later, that he took bread He took that same unleavened bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And I break it for you. And he took a cup and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this. No longer will you paint 
blood on the doorposts of your house. This is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant, blood of a new lamb shed for you. So come do this in remembrance of me. As you've remembered how God delivered you from Egypt, remember how God delivers you today through me because the story of Jesus and the cross is the story of the Exodus. It's a God who will do whatever it takes to rescue his children from slavery. So brothers and sisters, welcome. Welcome this morning to the table of the Lord.